Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is Episode 16, Thomas Cabanis, Striving for Harmony, Act 3, recorded November 1st, 2018, in New York City. Screaming about a revocability Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches And fight our own way free Cause the rules don't lie but they don't apply to people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out and the pushcart man with a three-part plan Can't understand what you're shouting about But when the past they plow The lives allowed are the only roads you can see Just remember the walls were built to fall For old people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Bonney is a proud partner of Teaching Artists Guild. Teaching Artists Guild. You know, we just had Gene Johnstone, the executive director, on. Oh, yeah. That was a great episode. Thanks, Ben. You're welcome. Could you tell me a little bit more about Teaching Artists Guild? I can. Teaching Artists Guild is a national network of teaching artists and arts education leaders. They've been around since 2013, and Teaching Artists Guild, or TAG, has provided resources and communication about the growing field through their website, databases, and quarterly magazine. They also feature a pay rate calculator and have recently launched an interactive map of the field. Oh, and they also offer dental and vision discounts across the whole U.S. of A. That's amazing. You can visit them at teachingartistsguild.org to learn more about all this fabulous stuff. Tag where the resources are abundant. A white supremacist from Australia committed a terrorist act in Christchurch, New Zealand, in a mosque. This was a meticulously coordinated effort um, and there were 50 victims 50 people who were gunned down while praying and he was caught eventually and um, s- filmed the entire thing which I, I refused to watch but um, in his rantings and his ravings on on the various networks that he had access to, he cited his inspiration as other white supremacists, fascists, neo-Nazis, etc., including, um, and and actions thereof, uh, including shootings like the AME Church and Dylan Roof. Um, You heard about this a little bit in Act 2. He also mentions our president, 
as someone who has been supportive of nativism. And um, for me, I've said this before, and I'm trying to do this, that, you know, while we are living in dark times, I'm going to try and highlight the positive things and the hope. And what I find quite remarkable has been the response in New Zealand to this tragedy, especially by the Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, um, in terms of being there for the surviving victims, grieving with families in person, um, and respecting where she is and who she's um, or being surrounded by, in terms of respecting um, certain aspects of their way of life. Um, and to the government um, looking to adjust their gun laws so very quickly. Um, So it's not just thoughts and prayers. That doesn't seem to be the only thing that they are looking to do, Um, which, you know, I I find it sad that I don't, I don't expect that kind of empathy or clarity or humanity from our current chief. But isn't it wild that, we're what we're seeing from this particular um, leader, this country's leader, um, sorry, New Zealand's country's leader, New Zealand's leader, um, and what you know other officials are are doing in that country that it's a almost a breath of fresh air. Like what, what? I talk about hopes, uh, hope, obviously I talk about ripples of hope and I think what she is sending out in her very clear actions and her statements in her hugs is that she's sending little ripples of hope throughout the Muslim community, um, that city, that country. And I believe that we, um, can harness, um, that those ripples right here within our own regions. So I ask me and I ask you, what will you do to continue to shed, spread light and joy and kindness and empathy, even in the face of this ugly, ugliness and violence and anger? Okay. (laughs) Uh, What will we do? Let's let's listen. Let's listen to this, right? Okay, so in this last act, this last act of season two, Tom and, Thomas and I explore the balance of the teaching artist and the arts administrator, along with the idea of um, hitting the proverbial ceiling as teaching artists. Um, and I say, let's find those edges. Let's keep pushing. So here is episode 16, act three, Thomas Cabanis, Striving for Harmony. I want to know more about your, um, your, your, um, cause you, you, you dropped it in there and I didn't even pick it up that you were like, oh, and I worked with her. I hired her as when we were talking about Jane, oh, Jane um, yeah. mm-hmm. as a, an education director. Oh, oh yes. When were you an education director and for where, right. for what organization? So I was a teaching artist for Lincoln Center first, and then I also began to do some work um, with the 92nd Street Y. Mm-hmm. Um, as a teaching artist, Polly Kahn had um, hired me to do some some work, and I actually formed a little, we, we created a little series for kids K-2 to mm-hmm. um, called the Musical Introduction Series, which were just concerts for, you know, early childhood. 
students. And we worked with, you know, kids in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And that was really fun. Um, and so at the 92nd Street Y, um, when, when Polly left to go uh, to the New York Philharmonic, uh, there was, they needed someone to run those programs. And so I did. Um, I, I had been looking for ways to be in the city more because, you know, my wife and I decided we wanted to have a family mm -hmm. and traveling around the country doing regional theater was great, but not so great for trying to have a family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I started working there. And when I worked there, I, I knew Jane. And, and so when I began working, I thought, well, I need someone to help me think about how to restructure these programs because they were there were lots of different things going on, but they didn't have a lot of... Um, they didn't have a lot of flow. They didn't connect to each other very well. And I thought we could do a better job. Mm -hmm. And so I immediately just called Jane and said, would you come over and help? And so she did, mm -hmm. which was great. And how long were you there for? So I was there, I guess, you know, this was all overlapping. So I had begun mm -hmm. as a teaching artist um, right around, you know, 89, 90, something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And I was there maybe, I don't know, six, seven years. And did you enjoy, like, what... That a lot of people do that where they they transition mm -hmm. from being a teaching artist to an arts administrator. Um, what were what were some of the reasons for that for you? Besides, well, I liked the curatorial you know, part yeah. of it where mm -hmm. I got to do the programming. Mm -hmm. I really liked that. Mm -hmm. I liked working with the, my fellow teaching artists and mm -hmm. kind of thinking about how we could all get better together. And mm -hmm. I kept teaching. You know, so I kept I kept mm -hmm. going. I didn't give up my my teaching responsibilities mm -hmm. within that. I've, I've always thought that was really important. And yeah. so I, you know, I mean, I could have stopped doing that, but I decided I didn't want to. So, um, so yeah, I like those parts of it, mm -hmm. you know, the parts of it that are like, we're drawing up the budget and, you know, doing the paperwork and, um, contracts with the board of ed mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, you know, were busy work that I didn't enjoy particularly, but I, I did them because right. they were, they were part of the, part, part of the of job, the, part of the gig. Yeah. And, and, the the vision did you have did you feel like oh i'm sorry <laughs> i didn't ask a question the vision yeah. what go. go uh but did, did you did you um you know in terms of working with the team working with the teaching artists continuing to teach did you feel like you had um you know some impact there in terms of, of shaping a vision for them and then enacting Jane that. helped me with that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, she helped me um, really th think about those things. I, I think at the time I was mostly, again, thinking about it as, as a kind of a, a part-time thing that I was, I was doing <laughs> mm -hmm. that, um, you know, I wanted to make it better for sure, mm -hmm. but I don't know that my heart was fully mm. in it. Mm. Um, in terms of trying to provide a vision for all of the programs and so on. And there was a lot of change going on at the Y at mm -hmm. the time, too. The orchestra had been there, and then they were leaving. And mm -hmm. so things were a little messy, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, and so the moment, actually, Polly then called me from the Philharmonic, and she said, hey, would you like to come over and teach for one of our new schools that we're starting up with, uh, starting a new partnership program mm -hmm. with the Philharmonic. They had sort of absented themselves from arts education for a good 10, 15, 20 years almost. Mm -hmm. And they were coming back into it and Polly was leading the charge. And so I, at that moment, I was like, let's go. You know, because it meant, again, I always love the teaching and the yeah, content. Yeah. So I was like, I'll forget the why. I don't, they don't need me. They'll get somebody else to run that thing. Mm -hmm. But I want to, you know, I really want to do more musical work mm -hmm. and, and be in the classroom. And um, so I, I started working for them, you know, right around 95, 96. And what did you, what kind of work were you doing there? I was, I was a teaching artist. Mm -hmm. And then, um, 
you know, uh, in residence at a public school. I was there, you know, twice, sometimes three times a week, um, really working with all the classes, third, fourth, and fifth grade, and, mm -hmm. um, you know, preparing them for Philharmonic concerts, but also playing the recorder and teaching them recorder mm -hmm. and um, creating, writing music, you know, inspired by different things. And, um, you know, we started a tradition of, they would write recorder fanfares for their fifth grade graduation. Uh. And then we would, you know, the kids would, would write them together and then they would memorize them and then perform them at their, at their graduation. And so that was really, really fun. And so I was, I was just into that, like mm -hmm. doing that was really great. And Polly asked me to take on some administrative, right. uh, uh, you know, capacities mm -hmm. there. And so I did a little bit of that. Um, I was the assistant, her assistant director, um, for a few years and then she left that job and so then you know once again I took over a job from Polly running uh -huh. you know becoming the education director at the New York Phil mm. so that's so I it sounds like because I know some of the work that you do now which we'll get into but like it sounds like that if if we were to think in percentages so if you're an um, you're working full-time as an arts administrator but uh, a part of your time is is teaching um, let's say that's the 80 20 is that fair, sort sure. somewhat fair? Sure. Uh, but it feels like um, your sweet spot, as it were, is the flip of that, right? right. So you're you like to start pr programs, build programs, but you don't want to be in charge of all the programs. Yeah, I like content. But I, I mean, that's what I've come to realize. And that's know? an interesting thing. I hadn't thought about it like that, like content versus design. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah. the administration that right. uh, goes into design is different than the administration of content. Right. And so there is this conversation I think that a lot of a lot of teaching artists I was just ha actually having a conversation this morning with um, some colleagues where we were trying to talk about leadership or we were talking about a lot of things but leadership was one of the conversations that came up around how teaching artists who have been in the field for 15 to 20 years and really like this is the work that they do and they love but um, is there space, especially as we continue on this path of growing this field, um, uh, of finding opportunities for leadership that makes sense for an artist as opposed to flipping completely into being a full-time administrator, which is not a skill set that everybody um, either wants. Like, they may be able to do it, but that's not necessarily where the passion lies for some, whereas there are people who would much rather do all the passionate stuff and not, or what their passion mm -hmm. is the administration and not the teaching or not the content piece. Right. And, um, you know, as somebody, from my perspective, as, as somebody who is an arts administrator, or, or sorry, an education director, I have people on my team where I need all of those things and they don't all have to live in each person. In fact, it's better that it's not. Um, but I have to find, help everybody find that balance in, in certain ways. So, um, so let's talk about what you do now, because I do want to go back to what you were <laughs> doing, but like, sure. I love, uh, I can't, I can't remember when we sat down and had drinks, mm -hmm. if it was before or after you at the, uh, International Teaching Arts Conference in Edinburgh at ITAC 3, mm -hmm. if you had done the, the, I guess it was a presentation, but you made it a workshop of the Lullaby Project. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, so I can't remember the timing of that, to be honest with you, but mm -hmm. <clears throat> I remember feeling really proud <laughs> when you were leading this, having no, you know, real history with you, but thinking, hey, I know that guy. And oh my God, this program is amazing and I feel like 
thrilled and excited that this is a program that exists that he is the person who is involved in this like and what a weird thing for me to feel um anyway so (laughs) just to let you know that um but i've had you present about this twice in my class or in two different semesters because it's so it's so beautiful could you tell us about the lullaby project because i feel like that's a big part of what you do is that am i right yeah 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 it's it's been growing and with you know partnerships and so on and so it's yeah it's become um yeah a pretty big part of what i do um for me it's all stuff that comes out of the work Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. everything comes out of what you've done before in a certain way Mm -hmm. and so um i had gotten really interested in the idea of um songwriting and how songwriting could help, especially young people, teenagers, um, express themselves in um, sometimes in situations where they were not getting other kinds of support. So I was working, you know, in um, in um, a neon in Harlem in a probation mm-hmm. center, really helping kids there again, you know, write their own songs. And, and a neon and stands for um, it's uh, boy uh, right. in neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it stand for? Yeah. Uh, opportunity Network. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's Neighborhood Opportunity mm-hmm. Network, and the N, the E is small. Yeah, Neon. Yeah. yeah, that's uh-huh. right. Um, and um, and I have been really inspired by doing that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were doing that work um, also at Jacoby Hospital mm-hmm. um, in the Bronx, where kids were um, had uh, we had a group of kids who had chronic HIV and were having trouble with adhering to their medication mm-hmm. regimens. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was, hey, let's let's get a you know the the social worker who runs their group. Let's work with her. Let's do a songwriting workshop as part of what they're as an addition to what they're doing, and see if what the the impact of that is. Um, I loved doing that project. I thought it was you know the kids were amazing. They wrote amazing things. They were very brave. It was terrific. So it meant that we were working on the campus of that hospital, which also meant that we were talking to the hospital at large about, you know, how music might be useful to them as practitioners, as doctors, as social workers and nurses. And um, and so as a result of that work, the OBGYN department got word. they, They came to a concert and heard those kids perform and they were inspired by it and said, hey, would you think of doing work with our pregnant teens? Mm. And so um, I immediately thought about lullabies because I love lullabies. It's just one of those things I just happen to love them and I've written them for my own children and I'd given them as gifts to friends when I was a, you know, when I was younger. And, um, and so, yeah, we just, it, it seemed like it was kismet or something and we, we the, um, immediately thought like, well, how could we structure a project in which these moms would come in, spend a little bit of time writing lyrics, we could help them write the music, make it really singable so that they could actually use it, but, but at the same time do it with professional musicians so that there's some musical support for them. Um, we could, re- I immediately said to everybody, cause Carnegie is a very performance oriented mm. organization cause they're mm-hmm. presenting organizations. So they think of everything in terms of a concert mm. And I said, you know, with this one, indulge me, maybe it's not a concert. It could be. And we do do concerts now, right? But I said, but what this really should be is a recording project. Mm. 
And that was a big turn around the corner for Carnegie's mm -hmm. education programs, you know, because people are like, well, that's not what we do. We're not, a, we don't really record, you know, that's what recording companies do or, yeah. you know, recording studios do, but we, that's not what we do. We really are, a, you know, we present. Mm. So, you know, so there was a question mark about that, mm -hmm. but luckily Sarah Johnson, with whom I work over there, mm -hmm. sa you know, said, no, 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 I think Tom's onto something. Let's try it. Mm -hmm. So we did a pilot project um, with some moms at Jacoby, and it was amazing. And the recording studio part of it, because we did go to, into a professional recording studio and record these songs, mm -hmm. was a big part of its impact and mm -hmm. success because the moms got to be producers mm -hmm. sometimes they got to sing their own thing mm -hmm. into a microphone and all of that was just you know i mean it's not rocket science that that kind of experience can be you know um, transformative for people um uh, young people especially when they're able to get their stuff out there mm -hmm. um and see what it is that they want to say, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but the recording part of it was really was really important, and it's also m meant that what we've been able to do is to create a library over time mm -hmm. of these, a big collection of these songs. Well, there. Um, I mean, you you said that you give you used to give lullabies as gifts, right? And it's mm -hmm. the the recording of it is a gift to their child and to themselves and right. to the, the the family bonding and the idea of being a producer is um, that you're giving these um, you know, new mothers agency in a way that so many other parts of their lives, they ha don't. Right. And right. so there's, I mean, I'm sure you've had all these research conversations. No, we do, we do. And that, I mean, it's so interesting, you know, that sometimes, you know, we, um, mom would come in and she's producing the, you know, her, her song. And so we put her at a table where she's got a red button where she can, you know, talk to the people, the musicians in the, in the studio mm -hmm, itself. Mm -hmm. And, and there was one instance where, you know, we had a nice arrangement. We'd built up with like five or six musicians of of this mom's song and she said nope you're all fired i want just guitar and voice that's it goodbye and she fired us wow and and we Bye. we were fired <laughs> and we were fired we all got a cup of coffee and mm -hmm. and kind of celebrated it afterwards because yeah. it was such a moment of, of agency she was like mm -hmm. i this is not how i hear it yeah i don't hear it this way mm -hmm. like it's you know it sounds okay but i it's going to sound better if and for her, that was it, you know, and I, I just love moments like that. Yeah. And so how long, how long have you worked for Carnegie Hall? So I started in 2008, mm -hmm. so about 10 years. And when was this project? 2011 said, yeah. is when we started it. Great. And so um, when you started working with them, were you a teaching artist solely or? Yeah, you know, I... I look, I have the most luxurious <laughs> teaching artist gig in the world, in my opinion. I really do, because you were talking about this leadership question yes, yes. before, and I think, you know, I lucked into it um, because of the fact, frankly, that I had some administrative experience mm. that helped me. The mm. fact that I had had you know done the full time gig before, mm. and you know, had had done the design work, um, but I was really lucky in being able to create, in a way, kind of create a, a position in which I sort of consult across the education programs at Carnegie Hall, mm. and Sarah has wanted to wanted me to work in that way, um, to work across different programs in a way to help give a little bit of glue 
and a little bit of um, common voice mm -hmm. to different things because she's running a big operation there and there are a lot of different things going on. And so, you know, how to get some, you know, conversation she can't always be mm. part of mm -hmm. um, uh, every single one. And so um, I've been really put in the position of being kind of, um, I think of it as like lead researcher, like a innovator, yeah. like mm -hmm. think of something new, like you're do we're doing this project, mm -hmm come in, work with this project, and then tell us what else we could be doing or what we could be doing that's new, mm -hmm. you know, as part of that. And so I'm constantly suggesting, you know, new ideas. They don't like all of them, you know? A lot of them get rejected, mm -hmm. right? But every once in a while, like the, lullab the lullaby project, mm -hmm. that like took, you mm -hmm. know? And, and there's some other things that I've done too. So, um, but I feel so lucky to be able mm -hmm. to do that, to lead through the both the composing and through um, the the teaching, you know, mm. or in in a way like, it is kind of like project design. Mm. It's But it's from the standpoint of what do we actually do in the moment, in the classroom, in the community center, in the, you know, in the room, what do we do, you know? And, and I'm, I'm just so fortunate to be able to do that. Do you think about like, the, I, we have a, a teaching artist here used to be an, um, a full-time administrator and she used to say things that I, you know, her approach to developing content within the structure of already designed program would be to ask the question, well, what do we want the room to feel like? Mm -hmm. And I just thought that's, I love that. That's the way I think about it in terms of event management, yeah. but not in the sense of, you know, like catering. That's what I think about. Like, yeah. what do we want people to feel so that we can create a, a nice menu. Yep. Or, um, and she was thinking in the same way, yeah. but more specifically about designing the content, yeah. which uh, it sounds like that's sort of where your, your forte is, is about, you know, yes, you're the glue for these other programs, but the idea of like, what do, what do we want to have happening in this room? And what is the, going back to Jane, like what yeah. are the outcomes? Yeah. To me, that's the same thing as asking this question. What do we want? What do we want these people to be able to do? Right. And, um, and ultimately if it's about what's happening in the room, there are other, these other sort of ripples that happen that have, um, impacts on other aspects of their lives, but you're not focused on all of that. Right. It's this is a very simple idea. A new mom needs to bond with their child. There's a lot that can be going on in their life, but this is a simple idea. Yep. Bonding. Yeah. And caring. And then the agency and then the writing and then the, you know, and I love the sort of, um, you know, we have a lot of conversation, at least in my, in my sector, we talk a lot about process versus product, sure. right? So that idea of giving concerts, that's a product yeah. and that has a very specific connotation a very specific, it changes from the process. It, it, you know, flipping towards that, it, uh, I think can be quite jarring for some people who are, you know, not, Right. artists you know professional artists themselves but the idea of recording to me is really interesting so one of the things that we do in, in one of our uh, deepest um, uh, residency programs is there's a, a lot of different ways that a residency can can culminate and it doesn't have to be in this idea of like a production or performance necessarily but we've been doing a lot of videos yeah Makes so sense. we were so either the kids have created a song and then they create and design what the what the um, storyboard out the video and then we create this video and then the final 
day is like a viewing party, right? So there might be people who see the video, which is fine, but they're not the editors. They're not like, we're not a music, you know, we're not into film. So it's not that part, but that, that to me is such a low, um, low focus way Mm -hmm. of being able to showcase what you've done. Absolutely. Um, and, um, it also that, that sort of the kids being able to say, no, it should look like this. You know, all of that agency, I think, is very, very Yeah, important. and you have to build that in. You have to design it so mm-hmm. that you can bring your best self as mm-hmm. an artist, your talent, your craft. You can bring all that stuff, but it has to be designed in that there's room so that that flip can take place. Yeah. So that the person you're working with, as they gain confidence and interest and as they become you know, invested, invested invested Mm -hmm. in making their opinions Mm -hmm. known, Mm -hmm. there has to be room for that. Absolutely. Otherwise it doesn't work, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, I've seen that, the video, the New York times video a couple times too. And I think about, um, so, so, so often, and and I don't think this is like a common, I, I don't know how common this is. What I mean is that sometimes we come in with, um, like a preconceived notion of what this is supposed to look like and what the content, what the, the filling of the content will be as opposed to creating space for discovery to happen and, and discovery on all parts. Like, I don't know what you're going to say. I don't know what you're going to write. I don't know what this music is going to sound like. Right? right. And that, that the filling of the container, like we create the container and it's the participants who actually fill it in. Right. And I wonder sometimes if people, how, in designing the content, people understand that part of it. Uh, do you want to? Yeah, I do. Like, I mean, yeah. I think you know. For instance, one of the things that we find a lot in doing the lullaby collaborations is, you know, generally we like to start as a group, but then mm-hmm. we quickly iris down into yeah. kind of one-on-one or two-on-one mm-hmm. conversations, very intimate conversations. These kind of islands of intimacy, mm. where the you're really just attending to one person's you know, to their, to their story, to their, to their interest. And, um, one of the things we talk about a lot is, um, okay, so maybe, you know, somebody has an idea about a phrase or some words, right? That they want to, something they want to say to their child. Mm. That's great. And then we have that crazy moment of like, there's no music to this. What could the music be? Maybe they'll sing it. But maybe they won't. Maybe they'll they'll feel like they can't or mm. they don't know how it goes or they don't have an idea of how to start or mm. whatever. So it's that that moment is very important though, because if the artist steps in, if the musician steps in, then it's over. Yeah. In other words, they'll they'll mm. they'll give. They'll yeah, like, they'll okay, oh, whatever you think, whatever you right? think, kind yeah. of thing. So the the length of time that you've got to wait, you know, and you've got to say, um, no, I, I, you know. I can I can be silent for a long time if if you're just thinking and you need some more time to think it up and mm-hmm. uh, or I can I can do something that is very um, that has very little content to it but I can at least place it underneath you while you think of your idea mm-hmm. and give you room and space to do that it's the hardest thing to do um, for all of us who kind of want to you know. Well, we want to get it done. We want right. to accomplish it. We want to make sure that we write something or create something really cool. Yeah. You know, um, but at the same time, 
if it's going to come from them, mm-hmm. then you got to wait. Yeah. You really got to wait and you have to be very, very patient. Mm-hmm. And it, there's a lot of risk involved in that too because mm-hmm. you can lose them in that moment too, mm-hmm. right? Where they feel like, oh, they couldn't think of it and then they just feel insecure, mm-hmm. you know? So it, there's a real balance of trying to sort yeah, that out and I feel yeah. like it's, it, to me, that's so much of what teaching artistry is mm-hmm. about is how do you leave the appropriate amount of room, mm-hmm. you know, without, without selling yourself short because what you're bringing as an artist is really important too. You know, you got stuff, you got goods, mm-hmm. you got training, mm-hmm. you know, you know what you're doing. So I just think that's fascinating. Yeah. And that's what I think that so do I, I find, um, you know, as, as I, as a, somebody who just explained, like, I don't understand music, but what I do understand having watched the work, having been somebody who's been a part of, you know, little workshops around this is that that room where it is about what I want, how I want this to sound and that the artists are there to help um, give me a little bit of literacy or, you know, be at the ready to try something out. And, and, and what I felt or what I feel at least or in my limited experience around it is the no idea is a bad idea. Right. Right. Like let's try it. That, that risk taking is still low focus yeah i'm like well let's just try it yeah oh oh is that it no it's not okay well let's keep working yeah Yeah, yeah. try something else and even just the way you start with the humming you know that's a very low focus way of getting us to start to sing um i i just i love this program so so much i just think i think about it a lot (laughs) we're we're excited about it Yeah. yeah 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 no it's something to be very very like like i said like i remember uh, when you did that workshop and w- that was a big room of people. There was like at least 200 people in that room or, or so. And you got us all to hum and you got us all to sort of be in the moment of creating a lullaby and harmonize. It was just amazing. And then you're talking about this program. I'm thinking this is, amazing. <laughs> this is just amazing work. And I, I, I don't know. I just felt very proud proud that this is this is something that is a part of our field i think it's really great i think it's good for the field yeah i agree yeah what what um now you work also at juilliard Mm -hmm. and so what you're teaching there so i teach a few different things there but one of the things that i mean you know most related to teaching artistry is that i teach the arts and education class to the Mm -hmm. graduate students Mm -hmm. so it's part of the graduate program and um it's a chance for students to learn about policy, to learn about the field, the kind of the, the way in which teaching artists operate in the world. So entrepreneurship can be part of that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a weekly seminar and it's, um, I, you know, um, I feel lucky because I get to work with really, really talented musicians who are basically coming in out of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Like what, how could this be part of my future career? Yeah. Um, Which I think is really smart of Juilliard yeah. to have that. Yeah. Um, and I feel like it, just thinking about conservatory, it's a, it's a conservatory, it's right? A conservatory. Yeah. Like ha- I don't know. I don't know. I'm literally asking this question. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know how many, um, other kinds of conservatories think about the having at least having a seminar. I think they're all beginning education. to. I think they're all yeah. beginning to. So you know, um, like Juilliard, um, I think everybody has this as a as an elective, as a something um, you know, not <laughs> not surprisingly, kind of on the margins yeah. <laughs> of the curriculum, mm-hmm. right? Not necessarily central. So I think you know the next move that has to happen in conservatories is that it has to be more central and be part of of you know of a musician's training 
um, in a way yeah. that is required, not 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 um, you know on the on the periphery. But that said, I'd say you know Juilliard, led by Eric Booth, who really began that mm-hmm. course mm-hmm. Um, at Juilliard, um, you know has they they've been at the forefront of trying to figure it out. Uh, not the movement's not fast enough for me, but it's um, it you know it's moving. Yeah. So. Have I hit all your jobs? Have you? Have you? Do you do, where else do you work? What else do you do? No, no, no. I, that's those are the things I'm doing yeah. at the moment. I mean, I do a, a lot of other things at Carnegie Hall in that I'm uh, also the composer in residence for Link Up. Oh, what's that? It's an or- orchestra education series for mm-hmm. grades three, four, and five. And um, it's a big interactive play-in uh-huh, that kids uh-huh. come with their recorders or their violins yeah. to the orchestra hall and they play with the orchestra. So the idea is not that you come for a concert and you listen, but you come having learned all the songs mm-hmm. and you play with the orchestra. Wow. And it's done with 110 orchestras around the world. So the same program that we produce here in New York goes out to those places. Mm-hmm. We have four different shows. And um, so I've been spearheading uh, creating interactive pieces that really have a kind of a designed place for kids to play and sing and dance mm-hmm. even. We did mm-hmm. a piece that involved dancing from their seats in the orchestra yeah. hall. So, you know, it's um that's been a really, really great program that's grown since I've been there. We had nine partners when I started and now we have 110 Oof. and we're we're growing every year. So that's a very exciting and a b- kind of a big operation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love it because in a way I do my little part here in New York with the New York shows, but mm. then it all goes out to different places. So. Amazing. Yeah, they do it in Charleston, which is my hometown. Mm-hmm. So I actually host the concerts ah! down there just for fun, Why you not? know, just because it's home and it gets me yeah. gets me back, you know, to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and gigging, I mean, like making art. Yeah. 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 So I just finished a double piano concerto that was done out in, um, has been done in several places Mm. in Madison, Wisconsin and, uh, in Sonoma uh, in California and San Luis Obispo. It's coming back to Madison in March and we're doing a recording, um, of the piece with the, the original commissioning body, which is the Wisconsin chamber orchestra mm-hmm. and out of lullaby. I'm also making all these crazy operas for babies. Yes. I wanted to get to that. Yay. Um, how do you pronounce the, the latest piece? Otoy, 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 Otoy. Yeah. Otoy, Otoy, Otoy. That's hard to say. Otoy, 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 Otoy. Well, it's part of an invented language that is embedded in the piece. So, and all the all the names are kind of like that. So there's Owl, Owl, Oo, and there's Oroosteru is another <laughs> character, um, and uh, there's um, Okrokro, and then the title character who is Otoy, Otoy. Well, I do like I like birds. Yeah, birds um, are good. I was reading. Um, I didn't get to finish the second. Um, part two uh but i was reading the blog because i missed the show because i just couldn't get myself together um on a sunday anyway anyway lauren came which is I, nice. that's good so yeah. lauren joe's who's been a guest on this uh uh podcast before makes theater for um uh t- babies and toddlers um came to see the piece and what did she have to say about it well, we just had a great time realizing mm. how much we had in common, yeah. you know, working with these same populations, so many of the same concerns about mm-hmm. sensory items and materials yeah. and, you know, kind of the physical fabric and the tactile objects that the the, the kids touch mm-hmm. um, and the space and how the space gets treated. So there were so many different issues that we realized we had in common. So I think now we're just looking for a time to, you know, I think that's great. I mean, so notes. Spellbound is actually um, a part of the new Victory Theater. Uh, 
season this year, which yeah. in the spring, amazing. They've been to. a LabWorks um, uh, artist or group for a, a couple different years, and this is so. This is a piece that they the the piece that be, is being presented, the world inside me, was right. developed through. Um, uh, the lab works yeah, yeah. and it also has a, a, a series of, of teaching artists that uh, have worked with us so um, uh, I'm so glad that she got to see it but I, I'm curious because I, I I as somebody who focuses on school engagement I actually don't deal with babies yeah so well, much I you? mean toddler shows definitely for three and four and up yep. um, but if in the school s- sector but I love baby theater I think Theater for the very young is so. Ex- sorry, I'm thinking about theater for the very yeah. young. Yeah, but, but this like is theater too. Pieces so. for this the very with young. Some music, that's all. Um, and the early childhood sector is is yeah. vital. Um, so what were some learnings that you had be beyond you know what you just already said about materials and that kind of thing? But so right. you know, had you ever made uh anything any works before? No. That for this age range? No. no so no, what no. was the age range again? Baby, like zero six? to two. Zero. Yeah. Yeah, and you know when I've done this work in the United States and in in Norway, and I've done mm-hmm. it with a collaborator from England in part because this work is much more common in um, Scandinavia yeah. and the UK and Australia. Mm-hmm. They do it mm-hmm. um, than than it has been here. Um, the theater world is ahead of the music world in this uh, regard. Mm-hmm. Um, the Metropolitan Opera recently did an opera for That's babies, right. but they imported it from Scotland because they, yeah. they, did, they didn't create it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so did you see that? I did see it, yeah. W- and what did you think? I loved it. It was fun. Yeah. Fun, very different in that it was very much trying uh, to, um, you know, put forward um, what you can expect from an opera, you know? And so it was really good. It was really okay. sensitively and beautifully done, but yeah. very, but very operatic and very, um, um, and 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 very much trying to kind of replicate the sorts of experiences that you would find in um, a grown-up opera, right. in quotes, um, which I would say was not really the kind of thing that we were working on. Yeah. We were really trying to create a piece that was centered around the experience of, of the, the child. babies. Yeah. But that said, the the um, the piece that they did at the Met was great, and mm. I, it was beautifully, and I thought the composer did a great job. Mm. Um, yeah. So. This has been, I mean, this was fascinating for me because I didn't, um, I didn't even know that this work existed um, until I, I met, um, oh, virtually, I met the librettist that we ended up working with, Zoe Palmer, who had been doing these pieces um, in, in East London mm-hmm. with a group called Spittlefields Music. So Zoe, I originally got in touch with her because they were doing some lullaby work at London Hospital and I was curious about it and so I called her up and I said, hey, tell me about, Mm. let's compare notes. We must have a lot to, you know, share since we're both doing lullaby work. And indeed we did Mm. and, you know, but out of that she started to tell me about these, um, as she called them, rumpus operas, right? Or immersive music theater pieces Mm. um, for for babies and I was like, what are you (laughs) talking about? And, and I also have to admit that, so that she sent me to a video link to look at one of the pieces. I summoned it up. And I have to say that to begin with, as soon as I looked at it, I was like, oh, children's theater. I did. I had that thought. I like, I really did. I was like, oh God, like children's theater in the way that like, in a way that was not good. It was like, <laughs> I was like, oh really? I mean, I don't know. The, the, I, I looked at the costumes and I looked at the physical mm-hmm. production of it and I was like, oh no. I did, I, and I, I'm not proud to admit that, but it's true. 
Um, but then I real then I watched the whole thing, you know, because this was like a twenty five minute video. It wasn't a three minute video. It wasn't a trailer, right? It was the whole. And so I watched the whole thing, and as it went on, I realized that it was fascinating, and that actually some of the things that the kids were doing were amazing, mm-hmm. and some of the interactions between the artists and the kids were also amazing. And the more I watched it, the more I liked it. And I was like, so whatever I started with, some kind of prejudice about it in my head, mm-hmm. um, quickly sort unconscious of unconscious bias, perhaps. unconscious biases, mm-hmm. exactly right. Or conscious bias. Mm-hmm. I, I was I was biased. <laughs> oh, you said it I out was, loud. <laughs> yeah, I was just biased, <laughs> plain old biased. Um, but the more I watched it, I was like, well, this is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And so then. Um, since I had been working with um, this vocal improv ensemble, I began to think, ooh, is there a potential here? You know, because Zoe kept saying it's really important to have artists who are flexible, who can do mm-hmm. things in the moment, mm-hmm. on the spot, you know, that kind of thing. And I was like, well, I, I know a whole group that I'm working with who are like that now. Mm. Um, so we, we began to, you know, sort of figure out that we might be able to work on something together. But I guess I've just really been finding out um, how joyful it is to be in a really abstract place. I've always loved that about music, Mm -hmm. right? That I could write an instrumental piece of music that could just be a piece of music without any other agenda than itself. Mm -hmm. And in a funny way, that's true of operas for babies too. They don't need to have a strong narrative or story. Mm-mm. They can have an arc of experience, but they don't need to have the nuts and bolts of dramatic conflict. They don't need to have those things. They need other things. Mm-hmm. But but they can also, they can be very free in their treatment of artistic elements. Mm-hmm. And that is just so liberating, you know, to be able to work in that kind of a space. And the babies are there, they're with you. They are with you for that. Yeah. They will go there, mm-hmm. right? Because they don't, there's no judgment there's about no that. Unconscious bias. Or right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's right. no pre- preconceived notion of what theater is supposed to be. Right. And so you do have to take into consideration developmental, <laughs> well, developmentally yeah, where they are. So right. sitting in a seat is not the thing, exactly. right? And I, I agree, like it doesn't have to be linear. It doesn't yeah. have to have So all we're those, on cushions you know, on the yeah. floor in a circle and we're, and we're, you know, um, and, and kids are free to move and to interact and to touch and mm-hmm. to feel and to be yeah. be in the thing yes. as much or as little as they want. Mm-hmm. And that is, yeah, that's terrific to watch mm-hmm. um, and to experience. Um, but from the greedy part of the artist, too, it, you're, you're released to create things that are sort of just plain old wonderful full of wonder and that's okay yeah well that goes back to the discovery that i was talking about and the space for that that you know the audience can participate or behave however they need to behave and this will work in and around them and with them and for them Right. I right. mean, it's a similar concept. Yeah. And so what a, what an exciting like learning experience for you. Yeah. No, it's been. Uh, yeah, it's been amazing. And and um, what happens now with this piece? 
So this was we've done it three times now. We did it. We premiered it in 2017. Then we took it on tour, and we actually uh, just around places around the city. So we did them in shelters and in clinics and, mm-hmm. and places like that. That was really fun. We did it without any of the theatrical via- values. We would just perform it wherever, mm-hmm. you know. So the production had a different feel to it, but it was really fun. Um, we're um, we've been asked to hold dates at a variety of places in around the country in San Francisco and St. Louis, mm. um, and we're also creating a new piece. So we have a co-commission um, going. Um, uh, Carnegie Hall and the Minnesota Opera and others are part of a, um, a consortium that are uh, creating a new piece that we're we're generating here in New York City, um, with uh, also with members of our Moving Star Vocal Ensemble. And that's called Numa in O O M A, and it's about it really a piece about breathing together. So about mindfulness and breathing together, mother and child. And so there takes place with three women, and there's lots of uh, parachute style fabric that um, we use in the um, in the piece, and we're we're working on that now. So mm-hmm. uh, developing that, and we'll premiere it in April. Um, so Otoyo Toy, I hope we'll have a future life, and we'll be able to run it in different places. Mm-hmm. Um, Every time we do it, um, there are lines out the door. So, you know, um, and so we, you know, I feel very privileged to be able to continue to give it a life yeah. and, um, and our ensemble loves doing it. So I, I hope it'll, I hope we'll, I hope we'll do it more. You know, it's, I find it, um, I find your job fascinating, <laughs> at, at least at Carnegie Hall, that you are, you are able to, to, to take this idea of, uh, I don't know. You have this like lovely spectrum of art making, art creating and teaching. Um, and there's like a, there's a blurriness to it that I, I I find really intriguing. Yeah. I like the blurriness. (laughs) That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. I also do the music educators workshop there. So once a month we have music teachers from around the city who come and we and we work on musical creativity in the classroom how can mm-hmm. you increase the and, and improve the kind of uh, composing and uh, improvisation that mm-hmm. goes on um, with students in in a music classroom mm-hmm. and the music teachers are terrific to work with and so we get to do a lot of interesting you know projects uh, with them and they in turn inspire their kids to write things and then some of those things get performed at Carnegie Hall so, you know, that's also a really exciting, I love doing the music ed- educators workshop too. And that's just real straight ahead kind of teaching artist work, like, yeah, you know, yeah, lead yeah. some workshops and, you know. So I guess I, you know, our, we've been talking for a long time and I could keep talking to you, but I want to, I want to respect your time. Um, so I'm thinking of like a few winding down questions. Yeah, let's wind uh, down. <laughs> um, f- f- I've been wanting to ask this since we started talking actually, but um, now that I have a better sense of sort of the trajectory of your um, artistic experiences, both in, in um, on a professional level as an artist and um, as a teaching artist, I'm, I'm curious when you really think about all the things that you've done, what, what are you most proud of? of? Yeah. Good question. I mean, uh, I, I'm I'm lucky, um, but I I guess, you know, look, I'm very proud of the Lullaby Project because I feel like um, it's created a community, and um, 
the communities of music teachers that I work with are fabulous. The students that I've gotten to work with, um, you know, as a teaching artist, those also are really interesting and fabulous communities. But I feel like with the Lullaby Project, we got we've gotten the chance to create a new community that sort of didn't exist before. Mm. Or if it existed, it didn't exist in the explicit way that it does now. Mm. But so when there are people from, you know, the University of Colorado Boulder who are researchers, who are doing the Lullaby Project with Native American populations in rural Colorado, and they're talking to us about that moment of, you know, co-creation, um, with between artists mm -hmm. and moms and and we're learning from them about the traditions and the rituals that they're tapping into when mm -hmm. they do this work mm -hmm. with that population which is so powerful I feel like that's a community that might not have been speaking mm -hmm. amongst mm -hmm. itself in the way that it is now mm -hmm. and I feel I that makes me very proud mm -hmm. I feel like I could step away from it tomorrow mm -hmm. and there's still there's still a ring of people who are interested in this work mm -hmm. and that that, I mean, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe it would, uh, whatever, but I, I think I'm right. I think, I think that the work itself is interesting enough that I could walk away, even a way that in a way that Carnegie Hall could walk away, that, it, that it's created, it's created a group of people who are really interested in sharing their practices with one another. And so mm -hmm. I feel, I guess I feel especially proud of that. That's great. Um, we didn't talk about your family, but I was just curious, like you, you have, um, um, kids who are, um, how old are your kids? 23 and 20. 23 and 20. So one's in college. Yeah. And one just got out of college. Yeah. Right? One just graduated. Um, uh -huh. and I'm just curious, like one, uh, they grew up here, <laughs> right? New York City, yeah. New York City, yeah. and so... I brought uh, them to the New Victory Theater. You did? Sure. What? I didn't realize shows. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, well, well. It's good. Yeah. It's good. It's a good place. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I guess that that is my question, you know, as 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 an artist, how, how did you engage your kids or have uh, access or give access to your kids in terms of arts engagement? Yeah. Well, you know... Um, my older son, Will, I can remember, mm -hmm. you know, having him, um, babe in arms, mm -hmm. um, you know, in a box in Avery Fisher Hall, uh, since I was education director there, there would be mm -hmm. concerts going on and I literally, I would bring him in, mm -hmm. uh, as, as long as he could kind of hold it together, but then I would, you know, dash out into the hall and we'd play and have some toys out there and then we'd go back in, mm -hmm. um, when he was, uh, I don't know, maybe seven years old, I took him to hear Janacek's Sinfonietta conducted by David Robertson, which is the biggest, loudest, honkinest, you know, amazing piece of music and I don't think he'll ever forget that, mm -hmm. you know. Um, they had amazing access to, mm -hmm. you know, just the arts in, in New York in general, but also they went to the school where I was a teaching artist. I, I got my kids into their, their elementary school because I was considered a member of the faculty. Wow. This has to, all to do with the politics of New York city public schools. And, and that's deep and strange too. But, but, um, you know, I was, I, again, lucky I was, I was still the teaching artist, you know, at Will's school when he was graduating wow. from there and huh. um which you know made him feel 
weird, weird and uncomfortable yeah. and proud and all the things mm-hmm. that you feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, and both of the kids ended up singing in the Young People's Chorus of New York City, ah. which was the greatest thing we ever did. Mm. Well, um, that was amazing. They both started when they were basically seven and went through till they were 18. Oh, wow. And they both traveled around the world. With that chorus, they went to China and Japan and South America and Wales and Switzerland and, you know, like all kinds of places singing. And so those, I think those experiences are the most powerful. I, yeah, I got them access to the Philharmonic and, and other, and Carnegie Hall and the Philadelphia Orchestra. But, and, and mostly they like playing with the walkie talkies. When I when I would do an event, uh, they really like, what? Yeah, they uh. liked the walkie talkies. They liked you know when we'd be doing a, a big you know concert. Like mm-hmm. I'd be hosting the concert with the Philadelphia Orchestra in Verizon Hall in you know Philadelphia, and they really wanted to do was to sit outside with the um, production assistant and talk on the walkie talkies, <laughs> which was great by me. I was I actually thought it was fine, you know. But my wife would always just like what are the, they should be in watching you, aren't they proud of your father? You know, all, their father and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like well. But really, the walkie-talkies are the, that's the most important thing. Um, so I got them some access, but I think the most powerful thing that happened to them was being in the Young People's Chorus of New York City, which is based on a model of diversity mm-hmm. and in really bringing together kids from all walks of life and having those kids sing together. Mm-hmm. And those kids are still my kids' friends. Right, and they were yeah. stronger friendships than they ever had in school. Mm. Way. Well, that was going to be my other question around, you know, thinking about what your father said <laughs> about the club, right, in Charleston and, and, and just sort of, you know, even though he was, you know, his po- on the political schema yep. was, um, you know, to the left, but sort of accepting some social norms yeah. um, that, you know, are questionable. Uh, that was my question is how, you know, how much... Uh, where you, have you been able to in 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 um is inculcate the right word but help your your kids um engage with kids who are not in their maybe their social class or race yeah. or ethnicity well i think you know i think the ypc i think the young people's chorus was mm-hmm. the, it was the way that th- was the strategy that we employed um public school was part of it but mm-hmm. then but then the ypc was really um was the most powerful and the most effective one, um, the most effective strategy. Um, you know, I still think it's complicated because even with all the things that we do, mm. right, there's, we're still operating in social um, streams that are the recipients of a lot of history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I feel proud of some of the things that we've done and not so proud of others. And I feel like it's, they're still working it through. My son, Will, is living in Chicago now and he's actually trying to find his footing and life as a musician mm. in Chicago. What and, does he play? Um, he's a producer and singer and led his acapella group at the University oh, of yes, Chicago this. Yes, group. Yes. But he's also, he's also a keyboard player and, mm-hmm. you know, looking to form a band and, doing a bunch of things, That's you know, great. trying to, to sort it out. But um, in all of his decisions about like where to live and who to be with and, you know, it, it everybody's still trying to work it out, mm-hmm. right? You know, mm-hmm. how can you be um, a reasonable, supportive, politically responsible citizen in a world that is pushing really hard against it, mm-hmm. you know? That I- idea of continuing to push 
the sort of uh, what do you call it? the pigeonholes that they keep trying to put all of us in um, and and um, the wedges that they try to keep putting in between people is um, and they you know the proverbial yeah. day but um, yeah that's where that's where I'm at I, I often I ask <laughs> the fi- the final question is mm-hmm. often um, a question about uh, what would the world be without arts but I don't think that's the right question to end on so um, I'm going to ask you this question because I feel like, you know, we could have follow-ups. I would love to have you on a panel if, when I get to another panel or live discussion some, at some point, but, um, I'm, I'm curious where about two things actually, and then we can come to a close one, uh, where, this is a podcast that is trying to like celebrate and advocate for arts and arts for all. So what, where do you think this podcast, like what suggestions do you have for this podcast to um, continue to be a place where um, people can be thinking, listening, um, pushing? Is that, is that the question? I think that's the question. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I've, I guess one of the things that I've been, um, I've been admiring recently um, about, um, Eric Booth's recent, his recent work mm-hmm. um, with El Sistema is the way in which he's been using, and it's the simple thing of just newsletters, um, to bring that community together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people who do El Sistema style, and there's a lot of controversy about El Sistema, and it's, you know, it's a music, it's a, it's a music learning program uh, based on uh, work in Venezuela that is, widely done now in the United States um, by orchestras and cultural organizations. But it's very interesting, and a lot of people are doing it, and one of the things that Eric has been doing is is using that the vehicle of newsletters um, to just create common awareness mm. of things, and um, and I feel like that is really doing a service to that, to that particular community. And so um, there's probably some way in which the the podcast can do that too, you know, that it can find its way into more mailboxes, mm-hmm. you know, um, and find its way into um, more decision makers, um, you know, in, into their podcast list. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know all the ways to do that, mm-hmm. right? But that's probably one, you know, one thought is to um, you know, what's, what's the campaign that will, you know, result in, in the podcast, you know, making it into, you know, you know, you want people to be listening to it while they're exercising or, you know, uh, driving a car to their yoga class or whatever (laughs) it is that they they do, Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then in terms of the teaching artist field, what, what are, what are conversations that aren't happening that should be, and, and where do you see, uh, where, where do you see this field going in um, the next decade? So now you're going to be sad. This is the last question you asked me because uh. I, I may not be able to do it quickly. But <laughs> but this is something I'm very pa- passionate about, and it gets back to something that I said that I f- and I am. I feel very lucky and privileged mm-hmm. to have this role at Carnegie Hall, where I'm a kind of a a researcher. I'm a kind of an you know teaching artist leader. I'm a you know um, I mean there are lots of leaders at Carnegie Hall. I'm not I'm not you know. Uh, I don't have a position there like that because we, it's just, it isn't that way, but I do have a special, um, uh, I have a special contract, a consulting contract with, mm-hmm. them, with them that allows me to do that work, um, to, to innovate 
to try out new things, to try pilot programs, to, you know. And, um, and I think there needs to be more of that. Uh, not just at Carnegie Hall. I think it needs to be in a lot of different places. And I think what happens is that one of the things that teaching artists who are in um, mid-career or in senior positions begin to feel, and they do, they're hitting their head on the ceiling because the program doesn't allow them to go any further. Once they've mastered the program, mm. once they know how to teach it, they teach it well, they will continue to find variety and beauty in the different populations that they're working with and the different students that turn over in grades or whatever it is, uh, and the different teachers that you know come in and out of their work. That's all going to provide variety, but it's not the same as really being of coming to work thinking, how could this be better? What else could this be? Why not try this? What if we did that? And having some ways to test those things out rather immediately. Mm. Teaching artists are not given that kind of power in general um, for a lot of reasons, a lot of smart reasons. And I've been in the position where I've, you know, been in charge of a teaching artist mm -hmm. faculty. Mm -hmm. But it's the thing that I'm most proud of as an administrator when I was at the New York Philharmonic. I was constantly asking our group of teaching artists, what should we do next? What are you not getting enough of? What else could we be doing? And they would say, like, this is great, we love the teaching, but we should be performing more. So let's well, we formed a teaching artist ensemble that would then perform in schools and did more of the concertizing. And then, you know, what else should we be doing? Well, we do a lot of composing, but we could be doing more. And so then John Deke, you know, created the Very Young Composers program out of that uh, out of that impulse. Mm -hmm. And so, and we and we engaged the teaching artist group to help him do that. Mm -hmm. What John had been doing it on his own up until that moment, and now it's a project that is like you know, really grown a lot and, yeah. and gotten a lot more attention as it deserves. And, um, and I feel like that comes out of a general impulse to be creative in teaching artistry. So not just in workshop planning or in lesson planning or even in, even in art making, but also like in the invention of the interaction. How can teaching artists be part of and and have a say in how interactions grow and change and get better. Mm. And we got to empower teaching artists to do that. They need that. And also they need to be able to see, I mean, I'm going to say this in a very arrogant way, but they need to see that they can be a Tom Cabanis. They can get to do what Tom Cabanis is doing anyway, right? Mm -hmm. It's not so much to be me, but it's to have the opportunity yeah. to do the kinds of things I'm doing. I realize that they are rarefied in a certain way and, and privileged, but I want other teaching artists to have the opportunity to do that kind of work and thinking and innovation too, you know? And, I feel, and so I feel like it's really important mm. in the field for us to, you know advocate for that because yeah. otherwise you know it teaching artists do get burned out and they will say like forget it like yeah. you know at a certain point i'm it could be that i'm, I'm 37 or it could be that i'm 44 or whatever mm -hmm. it is but they're going to say like the, this work doesn't hold anything mm. more for me mm -hmm. you know i need something else yeah uh at the international teaching artists conference we had um there were pre-conferences i think Carnegie Hall did one, maybe? I bet they did. Uh, I, 
like, I can't recall, but the new victory held one and it was about teaching RS as organizer, uh, organizational influencer, right. which is getting exactly to some this. of these yeah, things. Okay. But, but some of the things that you were talking about and some of the roles that you get to have are not necessarily things that we have, uh, on mass right now. We have, um, uh, what we call an enrichment team that works really closely. It's a, it's a subset of our teaching artists who work really closely with our, um, uh, staff, uh, they mentor teaching artists, they um, do program assessment. They're right now we're thinking about how can we be thinking um, about really sort of um, uh, getting underneath our teaching artists ensemble and you know, re looking at the foundation of it and how do we continue to strengthen uh, how we work not just the programs, but how we actually work together as a group. Um, and then thinking more, more, um, globally, I guess. And, and that's very exciting. And then there are like these sort of isolated projects that might come up, um, from time to time. And then our, our teaching artists also have been, uh, uh, not all of them, but a, se- a segment of them have been um, trained as researchers mm-hmm. um, and, and working with Wolf Brown. So that that has been really yeah. thrilling to be able to look at those. And there are definitely more more spaces that we could be growing into. But I, I think, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking how, how if if like so many conversations are about like livable wages yeah. and, you know, the gig the gig is is great but i don't have health insurance and so there's still some fraughtness just in like living yeah and um living uh, i guess with integrity and, and and dignity in that way um that how do we how do we even have the conversation that you're talking right. about how do we if we can't even have that we're starting to have those conversations i think more openly mm-hmm. um so i want to have i want to have all those conversations i want to i want to get dig into those uncomfortable spots um so i thank you thank you for sure you know illuminating that um uncomfortable uh reality yeah i like it um like i said i could talk with you for like 20 hours and still not feel like it's enough. <laughs> um, but thank you for giving me us so much of your time thank um, you. and sharing you know, your un, I don't even feel like I scratched the surface on your stories to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so there might be more, more opportunities in the future. Who knows? But, no, it was my pleasure. Um, thank and, you. and we didn't even talk about the fact that we work together on the um, association of teaching artists board, and, but we do, but we do yeah. that too. Um, Tom Thomas, Courtney CJ. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Do you have any any last things that you want to say? No, thank you. Really, okay. I appreciate it. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to episode sixteen, Act Three of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Thomas Cabinus, Striving for Harmony. Join us next time for a conversation with Quanice Floyd. Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the creative content manager. Brandon Hutchinson is the media arts coordinator. And Jerry Johnson-Smalls is the communications intern. Jono Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org. Follow us on Twitter at TA underscore artistry. And now on Instagram at teachingartistrywithcjb. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Ooh.